0: As Andrew mentioned, uh, my name's Rob, and it's really great to be here this morning to unpack the psalm together. So let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be here this morning to hear from your word. And Father, we just pray, we pray that you would lead us and guide us in the Holy Spirit, that you, no matter how distracted we are, no matter how broken we feel, And how unworthy we feel that you would open our hearts and our eyes to receive your word, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's suspend our disbelief for a moment and just imagine that the Queen is here in New Zealand and she's decided to pop in to church here, City on a hill. So she's popped in in her back with her entourage And at the end of the service, as we're funneling out those main doors there, there's going to be an opportunity to meet her. And I'm sure as we're all slowly going to the, to funnel out to see the queen, we'll be thinking to ourselves, what am I going to say? How am I going to act? This isn't some ordinary visitor off the street. This is the queen we're about to meet. Because on one hand, we don't want to be uh, disrespectful. We don't want to go in for a uh, high-five or hug her on the way out. That's incredibly disrespectful and rude. But on the other hand, we don't also want to do the other extreme either. We don't want to be flat on our faces, bowing down to her, kissing her feet. So how do we find that balance? How do we know how to act or what to say? So let's say for a moment, uh, let's say that the the first person to greet the Queen is Andrew, the senior pastor here. So let's say he's done a pretty good job. He knows what to say and what to do. So we follow his example. We observe how he interacts with the Queen, and we take that as a model for how we should introduce ourselves. And just like my little story here, as, as Andrew has taken the lead and modelled to the church, that in the psalm we have a very personal, intimate prayer of David that he's given uh, to, to Israel and now to us, which, which is an example and a model to how we can relate to God, uh, specifically how we can relate to God in regards to sin in our own lives. So this, this is not a word-for-word word cheat sheet. It's not something I can sort of read, and magically my sins all disappear. But this is a model to help shape our understanding and our prayers as we approach God. So how do we respond to sin in our own lives? And that's a big question I've always really struggled and grappled with. Because on one hand, we know that of God's love and mercy and that salvation is a free gift for all, and that also on the other hand, though, we know that uh, the seriousness that God has taken sin, the severity of the consequences of sin, the punishment that Jesus bore on that cross. So how do we hold those two truths together and find a balanced biblical response to sin? Well, David here has given us a prayer of his to show us how we can approach God and find that, that balance. So let's turn to the description of Psalm 51. So a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So David's prayer here is in response to sin he committed. Uh, that's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So the hero of the book of Samuel, of the two books of Samuel, is the legendary King David. He was being appointed uh, king of Israel by God. And he became a mighty leader, a mighty warrior, and one of Israel's greatest kings. So our hero, the king here, is in the middle of a war. And now these wars span several years. But one spring, instead of leading his army, he decides to take a break. He decides to uh, stay at home, lounging in his palace. Uh, while the rest of his army, uh, all the able-bodied men of Israel, are off fighting the war against the enemy. So one evening, he's taking a stroll along, uh, along the palace walls. He's looking out onto the city below, and he spots a beautiful woman bathing herself. But the thing is, she's not, he's not content just watching He uh, inquires after her and finds out that uh, she's called Bathsheba and married to Uriah, a soldier in his army. You see, David is like a little kid in this story. When he sees something he wants, he must have it. So he sends her um, back to his palace and sleeps with her. So David, also done and dusted, no one seems to have noticed, he moves on, he got what he wanted, but he has a problem. Bathsheba is pregnant. Now David, he has a choice. He could realize his sin. He could hand it over to God and confess it. Or he could try and cover it up. So unfortunately, that's what our hero tries to do. He tries to cover it up. So David has a plan. So plan A is to bring Uriah from the front, uh, back from the front to, to Jerusalem, And he's meeting him in the palace, and he orders Uriah to go home to his wife. Now, his plan is that Uriah will go home, sleep with his wife, and then everyone will think that the child is Uriah's. Awesome, plan sorted, you know, problem solved. But it backfires. Uriah ignored his orders and sleeps in the palace instead. Now, just because he couldn't fathom uh, going home to his wife, to the comfort of his home, when the rest of the army and the Ark of the Covenant is off fighting uh, Israel's wars. So he stays in the palace. So not deterred, David tries plan B. He escalates it a little bit more. So he gets him drunk, hoping that his inhibitions lowered, he'll go home uh, and sleep with his wife. But again, it backfires. Uriah sleeps in the palace. So David's getting, you know, he's getting a bit desperate at this point. His two plans haven't worked, so he tries his most audacious plan yet. Plan C. He sends Uriah back to the army, back to the front, with a message to the general Joab. He orders the general to put Uriah at the very front of the army. So when in the middle of battle, and when the fighting is most fierce, he, he orders the general to pull the troops back, except Uriah. And it worked. Uriah dies in battle. Bathsheba becomes a widow. And David marries her a couple months later. Uh, and this is all before the baby's born. No one is of the wiser what had happened. And to David, his plan has succeeded. It worked. To David, he's covered up his problem. But someone did notice. And the prophet Nathan comes knocking because God noticed. And when confronted by Nathan, by the enormity of what he had done and committed against God, David falls on his feet before God and prays his prayer because David can't fix the sin. You see, there was also a plan D, a plan that David should have done from the very beginning. So instead of plan A, he should have gone to come, come to God at the very beginning. Because no matter how much he tried, he couldn't keep his sin hidden. He couldn't keep his sin hidden from God. So after seeing the story, seeing where David's coming from, and why he's praying, we can just start to unpack and learn about the psalm, about relating to God, and how this relates to how we can approach him in regards to sin in our lives. So David's prayer can be broken into four distinct phases. And firstly, we're going to see uh, a petition of forgiveness. So in the first two verses, David is right off the bat, he's not... He's not beating around the bush here. In these two verses, he sums up the very reason why he's coming before God. He's acknowledging his sin and he's seeking forgiveness. So let's look at uh, verse 1 and 2 together. Verse 1 and 2 Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. There's two things that we see here that I want you to remember that's going to keep popping up through this this whole prayer. That number one, sin is a really big deal. And number two, God alone forgives. If we turn to that first line in that in verse one again. Have mercy on me. That's a that's a pretty strong word that David's using here. He's not painting an image of a boy holding his father's hand, saying, I'm sorry, Dad, for not listening. David is throwing himself at the feet of someone who could take his life. You don't say, hey, Dad, I'm sorry, will you have mercy on me? This is not the image that David is painting. David is throwing himself at the feet of God, knowing that he deserves death for what he has committed. The second thing that we'll keep seeing is that God alone forgives. And you notice in in verse 1 that David isn't asking uh, from from an attitude of, hey, I deserve a second chance, or here's what I can bring to the table, here's what I can do in exchange. He's drawing from God's nature. So he says in verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. David is making it real crystal clear here that he's crying out for mercy and he has nothing to offer. That he's not trying to negotiate. He's just asking for mercy because God himself is merciful and compassionate. And these two things, that sin is a big deal and God alone forgives, These two run throughout of David's prayer and really shape how he relates to God. So the idea of the seriousness of sin is explored in in more detail in the second phase of David's prayer. So after the first two verses, uh, there's a shift in his prayer, and he moves to expressing uh, conviction and confession. But you notice what sticks out in these verses, or specifically what's missing in these next four verses. There's no mention of any specific sin. There's no mention of his adultery or his murder. He's committed, you know, in our day, we would consider some pretty horrific sins, some pretty horrific crimes, but doesn't seem to mention them. So why is he crying out for mercy? Let's look at verse 5. Verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David is coming before God and asking for mercy. It's not just because of the adultery and the and the murder that he's committed. It's it's no, it's because he's been a sinner from the very beginning. He's always been a sinner. And this adultery and this lust, the murder that he's committed, it didn't just kind of tip him over the edge and now he needs forgiveness. That he needs forgiveness because he's been a sinner from the beginning. And this whole situation that's happened to him is in fact a wake-up call. A wake-up call that he needs Jesus or he needs God. David is admitting to God that he's been born into a sinful state, into a sinful nature. And that the sin that he's been committed has, has been throughout his whole life. And it still needs forgiveness and mercy. Because the fact is, it's not just the big sin that's a big deal; it's also the little sins that are a big deal. He also he goes on, in verse six, to say that he has no excuse for the sin that he commits. So let's look at verse six. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb; you taught me wisdom in that secret place. And like David, we have no excuse. Yes, we are sinful. From conception, But God desires faithfulness in us from the very beginning. God has given us the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. That David is saying that we're not some sort of naive, clueless people sinning without realizing it. That God has prepared in the human spirit the ability, the capacity for truth and wisdom. And something else that sticks out when we get to verse 4. And David prays in verse four, "Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight." Wait a second, what's David meaning here? He's just committed adultery and and murder. But what about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? Aren't these the ones that have been affected here? What's what's David meaning? So I think we need to draw back to the biblical de- definition of sin. So in the Old Testament, sin is the same word in Hebrew uh, for missing the mark. So it's the same word that will be used in the context of archery. And when the arrow misses the target, it has missed the mark. So in this context, uh, sin is... When we, when we have sinned, we have missed the target that God requires. So sin is not about wronging another person. It's about us and God. And, and it's about us disobeying God's law. So when David committed adultery, when he committed murder, that yes, he did wrong Bathsheba and Uriah. And I don't think David is trying to minimize the harm and the pain that he's caused them. And we don't want to ignore how damaging sin can be uh, to, to other people. But in this verse, David is talking to God. And David is highlighting the fact that he's disobeyed God's law. And he's stating that he's not only sinned in sight of God, but he's sinned against him. And it can be actually really dangerous to start viewing sin as just wronging other people. There's no such thing as a victimless crime. There's no such thing as a victimless sin. There's always a victim here, and that's God. For example, the 10th the commandment is, you shall not covet. Like, you might think that, hey, coveting, longing for something that is not yours, that it doesn't harm anyone, so surely that's Okay. But what if I look at my neighbour and look at the house that he has, that he owns? Might I think, oh, man, wouldn't it be great if I own my own house? And I look at his cars. Oh, wouldn't it be great to have you know, two cars, two really nice cars? Oh, have a really stable job? Oh, wouldn't it be great to have such a peaceful family? That doesn't harm anyone, does it? But it does. It's saying to God that, hey, you're not enough Hey, what you've given me doesn't satisfy me. And hey, you, you don't give me joy. In fact, sin is a really big deal because it's about us and God. Personally, I, I hate going to the dentist. All right, When I was at uni, uh, I had a bit of a tooth pain, so I ignored it. As you would expect... Um, It got a little bit worse. So I just started chewing food on the other side of the (laughs) jaw. Obviously, that didn't do anything, and it got worse. Uh, So I started taking painkillers because it was getting quite bad. Um, Obviously, that didn't last very long, and I'm in horrendous pain, and I spent all night eating ice cream. (laughs) At that point, I dragged my well, actually, joy dragged my wife, dragged me to the dentist, and uh, and I got it seen to. And as you expect, my tooth was an absolute mess. And and the only thing they could do is remove it, uh, or I spend two and a half grand, which obviously meant I removed it. <laughs> But if I had addressed that pain early, and if I addressed it at the very beginning, maybe it was just a little bit of a clean that was needed, or maybe a small filling. But instead, I allowed it to fester, to rot away at my tooth. And this is the same with sin in our lives. If we let what we're just seeing is a little sin, just slide, unconfessed, unaddressed, unforgiven and we just let it it'll start to fester it'll start to rot and like a little snowball on it going down a hill it'll get bigger and bigger and bigger David started with laziness here started and then it turned to lust then it turned to coveting then it turned to adultery and then murder and you might think this, think this little harmless sin in our lives means nothing But the fact is that we don't confess it, if we don't submit this to God, if we don't fight this sin, this sin will fester and rot inside of us. If I hadn't got that tooth seen to, it would have actually eventually killed me. It would have got infected and I would have died. And if our sin doesn't get forgiven, if it doesn't get cleansed by God, it will kill us. Sin is a really, really big deal, no matter how big or small. But the beauty of this psalm, this prayer, is that David doesn't just stay in this state. He doesn't just wallow in his guilt. David, in in verse 7 to 12, shifts to the third phase of his prayer, to just requesting uh, restoration and renewal. So David prays uh, with real confidence, seeking to be restored to a right relationship with God. So let's read uh, verse seven together. So verse seven reads, "Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean; wash me, and I will be whiter than snow." You can you can really see David's assurance here. He he knows that God can make him clean that fully clean, all his sins removed to the point that he's whiter than snow. And David isn't trying to negotiate. Yeah, he's not making promises here. There's no promise here of I'll do better next time. So yes, his sin is great, but God's forgiveness is even greater. That God, no matter what we have done, we can come before God Seeking and asking for forgiveness, and God will forgive and make us clean. So just a bit of a side note, that yes, even though David lived before Jesus, uh, he knew that only God can save, and only God can cleanse him from his sin. He didn't exactly know how God did it, or he didn't know at what cost. And for us today, we now know that for God to cleanse us, uh, to save us, it involves sending Jesus, his son, to die and take the punishments on our behalf. And then we also see, moving on in in this psalm, this prayer, that David also has assurance uh, that God can renew. So let's look at verse 10. Verse 10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David isn't promising that he's going to try harder next time. He's not straight up. He's straight up asking for God for steadfastness. He's asking for God to make a pure heart, to transform his desires and his motivations. And the fact that this starts with prayer, for for God to transform our lives, to to. to move away from just keep committing the same sin, it starts with prayer and then the Holy Spirit will be within us to give us a steadfastness as we uh, shift into the fourth phase of David's prayer from verse 13 we, we can see him focus on how he will respond to being restored and by being forgiven So we can see that David is uh, spawned with glorifying God. So firstly through uh, wanting to grow God's kingdom. So in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. David wants to see more people come to a right relationship with God. And he wants to see more people return to God. Uh, Secondly, uh, David responds by praising God. At the uh, end of verse 14, uh, David declares, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. His understanding of how uh, big a deal sinners and how God has restored uh, him leads to worship and praise of him. When I was six years old, uh, my whole family, I went to, all of us went to one of those fancy swimming pools with a wave pool and a a lazy river that's attached to the side. And I'm having a really good time, as any six-year-old boy would. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm next to my parents, I'm bobbing up and down in the water. But the lazy river has a strong current, and it was slowly sucking me deeper and deeper into, uh, into deeper waters over my head. And the thing is, though, is I couldn't swim. So I I kept bouncing up and down uh, from the bottom of the pool. I'll reach, I'll propel up and get my head above the water and take a deep breath. But every time I did that, I got into deeper and deeper water and it became harder and harder to do that. It got to the point that, uh, that a, a man, a lifeguard in a swimsuit jumped into the water and just pulled me to the side of the pool to where my parents were. But you see, the thing is, I wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't really appreciative at the time of the man who saved me. I, I didn't really know what the fuss was all about. You know, I wasn't particularly scared and you know, I was breathing fine. I was just actually just a little bit embarrassed about all the fuss, really. But if I understood the danger that I was in, if I understood that, you know, how big a deal being water that's over my head and the fact that I couldn't swim, if I, if I was thrashing around in the water, panicking, sucking in water, knowing that any second I was about to die, then when that man, that lifeguard, came to save me, I will be so much more appreciative. Maybe I'll give him a hug and go, wow, thank you for saving me. And it's the same for us. is that if we have a greater view of sin, a greater view of the consequences of that and where that's leading us to, then we will lead us to a greater appreciation, a greater love and, and understanding of God's forgiveness. and and a greater understanding of his view, uh, view of his love and, and grace, is that as we understand the imminent danger that we are in, then we'll be far more grateful to the God who has saved us from it. So, to take everything that we've unpacked from this psalm, from this prayer, how do we relate to God in regards to sin, to our sin? And this is for everyone here, If for those that follow Jesus, but for those who don't follow him or know him yet. We need to come before God knowing these two truths, that sin is a big deal and God alone forgives. God alone cleanses us. 1 John uh, chapter 1, 8 to 9 says this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Sin is a really big deal. But as John writes, if we confess him, confess our sins to God, he will forgive us and purify us. And for, for those who don't, know, uh, don't follow Jesus yet, I want you to come away with these two points. That yes, to God, sin is a really big deal. And he takes it pretty serious. And there are some serious consequences to our sin. But God forgives us because Jesus has taken that punishment that we deserve and bore that for us, then there's real simplicity in this that we can confess our sins to God and ask for forgiveness. And there's assurance there, as John writes. So for those who follow Christ, uh, David's prayer is a, a real reminder for us, a reminder to not be flippant with sin, And to never grow complacent. And something I've, yeah, it's really been a real challenge as I've been prepping the sermon over the last two weeks. So in verses 18 and 19, back in in the psalm, reads, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart for you, God. For you, you, God, will not despise. God requires not just a verbal acknowledgement of our sin, but a, an emotional one. That This is not a cheat sheet here. God doesn't want us to just go through the motions, you know, pray, the, pray this prayer, and you can just take it off your prayer to-do list for the day. He wants us to come to him with a broken spirit, humbled, dependent, knowing how flawed we are, knowing how broken we are, knowing the pain and the suffering we've caused them, then we can come come before him humbled, knowing we've got nothing to give. And if you're struggling to feel that, then pray and ask God for that. And some of the hardest prayers I've ever had to ask and pray is ask God, to give me a real sorrow and a real grief, a godly grief for the sin that I've committed. But then we can come before God because God will forgive us. He will purify us. Then he will accept us. And our sorrows will be turned to joy. And in the words of David, our tongues will sing of his righteousness for what he's done for us and to finish up. This is how we can approach God. Knowing how flawed we are. Knowing how sinful and broken we are. But because of Jesus, we can come before God with the real assurance that he will purify us and renew us and accept us. One thing I've read this week that really hit the nail on the, on the head about this. from Tim Keller. Tim Keller writes, The gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. So with this in mind, let's come before our God in prayer. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, knowing that we are nothing without you, that we are so flawed and sinful and broken. We come before you, and we pray that you'll give us a real deep sorrow and grief for the sin that we've committed, for the ugliest and dirtiness in our life. But we will come before you, not wallowing in that guilt, in that shame, but we come to you first and lay that before you, confessing our sin before you, Lord, knowing with great assurance that you will purify us, cleanse us, and restore us because of what Jesus has done on that cross for us. guide us and lead us you would continually convict us and we will grow in your love with a greater understanding of your grace and your mercy in Jesus name Amen